As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. She's never made contact with her family. Just off two days giving birth to a child, she's just disappeared off the face of the earth. On the night she disappeared, Crystal arrived back in Pyramid Hill on a train at 8.40pm. She was last seen at a friend's house an hour later. And that's the last sighting of Crystal 
that we've had. At midnight, she received a call on her mobile from a public phone box in Leechville. Homicide detectives believe the person that made that call from Leechville knows what happened to Crystal. While they never found her mobile phone, they hope someone in the community comes forward with information. On the 20th of June 2009, a heavily pregnant Crystal Fraser, who was 23, checked herself out of hospital to go to a party in Pyramid Hill, a country town in the far north of Victoria. Crystal had an intellectual disability and did not have any credit left on her phone to make any calls. One of the last sightings of Crystal that night was meeting an unknown, well-dressed man who was waiting for her at the Pyramid Hill train station. For a long time, too long, local police did not consider Crystal to be a victim of foul play and wrongfully believed she was responsible for her own disappearance. Our guest today, Dennis O'Brien, is a former police investigator and author of Last Train Home, a book in which he delves deep into the events of the people involved in Crystal's disappearance. Dennis spent a lot of time with Crystal's family and we begin this episode with him describing Crystal's early life. She was basically a victim her entire life, really. Um, I think her mum said she got to seven and just played out. So, you know, she didn't mature and didn't grow intellectually from there. So her life was difficult. She wanted her independence. As soon as she got out of the house, you know, she, she probably rebelled a little bit. Well, she was in that situation, wasn't she, where she had intellectual disabilities, but not to the extent that she couldn't complete school. She went to the same school as, as her peers, as her neighbours. She lived in a small community. So she she knew everyone in the community and, and she made sure she knew everyone and she made sure everyone knew her. She was a friendly kid. She seems to have liked people. Was that fair to say? Yeah, she wanted a friend and um, so she'd chat to everyone and to a point where some people were annoyed that she'd carry on with, with subjects that she loved. You know, we're all in a hurry, I suppose, and she wasn't. She had a loving family and, and they supported her well. Brothers and sisters, you know, mum and dad say they grew up being fighting like cats and dogs, but <laughs> they got to an age, those younger kids, when they started to realise that, you know, she probably needed a bit of assistance and they showed a bit of empathy after retirement and they were all pretty close. But also mum and dad, I mean, they were just such hard workers. They, they were real goers, yeah, they yeah. were. And they were working hard in their business and... You know, people around town say, or oh, they didn't have enough time for their kids, but they provided their kids with everything they ever wanted. So they're working in the interests of their children. At school, the teachers said, yeah, okay, she can read and write well, but told mum that she doesn't grasp the context of what she's reading. And mum also said her friends at school, and she loved school, were the teachers, helped the kids. So the kids sort of ostracised her a bit. You know, she, she didn't fit society's definition of a, a cool kid or a beauty or any of those things. What year was she born? So what, what, what sort of era are we talking about when she was at school? Well, she would have finished school in about 2005. Okay. So there was some support mechanisms there for all sorts of different kids, but also we're talking about Pyramid Hill. Tiny little towns, yep. Sort of close-knit communities. Uh, people did keep an eye out for her, and that's fair to say. People were worried about her. But, you know, more so when she turned into adulthood and um, started to live a little bit more chaotically and spend a lot of time in the pub, started smoking dope and then a lot of dope and hang around these people that mum describes as dirtbags, seedy 
druggies and drunks. According to the coroner's findings as well, she started drinking pretty young. Yeah. Look, I, I wouldn't think any younger than most kids growing up. Well, that's a really good point, actually, certainly in the country. Small communities yeah. where there's not a lot yeah. to do and football clubs are everything and, you know, football clubs might have improved a bit, but back then perhaps they weren't so, um, they were less tolerant, let's say, younger ones having a drink. Because she was socially awkward and she sort of missed normal social cues, that she realised after a while that um, the women didn't like her, girls didn't like her, and so to make friends... She realised that men were friendly and she'd maintained friendships, but it was conditional on sex. So, she, yeah, she was abused by those people and, and probably really didn't have a friend, really. Apart from having a number of sexual partners, um, Crystal was involved in some drug circles, some pretty heavy drug circles. Is that fair to say? Yep. So Helen, her grandmother, and Chantel, her sister, both tell me about situations where Crystal told them there was just running drugs for people on the train. And around the same time, Crystal says to her mother, Karen, oh, look, if you hear rumours that um, I'm selling drugs for people, don't believe it. And Karen hears this another day and says, Crystal, you know, is there something in this? And she says, she denied it, but said, Oh, the people I sell drugs for, oh, I mean, the people um, the people involved have told me, oh, I'll just tell the police I'm a nuffer and I'll get over it. So, they, you know, this is a predatory mm. behaviour of these people that she was involved with. Real assholes. Yeah. So Crystal's pregnancy, I read in your book that she was on contraception. She was on um, an implanted contraception. And that one seems to have been implanted in her arm. That's where they go around about the time she fell pregnant. Is that yes, right? Yes, exactly. So maybe a minute yep. too late. Do you know whose idea that was? Was that Crystal's idea or? No, that was a family's. At that time, she said to her mum that she didn't know who the father of the baby was, right? Yeah, and she maintained that throughout, yeah. But was but she was living in a flat in um, Pyramid Hill? Yeah, she was in Pyramid Hill. She was in Pyramid Hill nearly all her life. She had one little stint in Swan Hill with an old guy up there for a while, but that didn't last long when she came back to the flats. What do you mean with an old guy? As in like in a relationship? In his 60s. Yeah, mum was horrified about that, but she didn't stay long there. So yeah, she maintained a flat in Pyramid Hill for um, from when she was 19 until she disappeared. Her sister Chantelle said, there could have been up to nine men who fathered a baby, so she was in a variety of relationships, intimate relationships with a number of men throughout those few years. She did have one long-term relationship, an intimate relationship with Peter Jenkinson, a suspect in the case, for about two years, I believe. Uh, he acknowledged that when he was interviewed by detectives and he had had a relationship with her, but in his interest he said that the intimate side of that relationship ended over a year before Crystal's disappearance to remove any doubt that he may have been the father, obviously. He, he was 40 years of age when Crystal disappeared, when Crystal was 23. What can you tell us about him? Who is this guy? He's a local, unlike most of the people, that the men that Crystal was in relationships with, um, this guy um, held a good job, uh, good reputation in the industry, um, working with cattle in the dairying industry, was 
living alone at uh, Gunbower when Crystal disappeared. The family only knew this guy by uh, the moniker that um, Crystal had for him, which was PJ. He, he had had a long-term partner, a local woman from also from Gunbower for six years, and um, she ended the relationship because she was just sick of the lifestyle that they were leading. But um, she had no drama whatsoever with Jackson during that relationship. After that, he fathered a child to another woman. I believe that he was seeing Crystal during that relationship with the other woman who lived in Melbourne. Did anyone know that he was seeing Crystal? Did he talk about it? Did she talk about it? Apart from calling him PJ to her parents, did she talk about it with anyone else or did he? She was told that um, she had to maintain some secrecy about her relationship because he had to believe that um, he had a wife and two kids living with him in Gunbound, which was untrue. When she discovers she's pregnant, of course, her mum and everyone try to get out of her. Who is the father? She's, she doesn't know. And reasonably, her sister and, and other people say, well, that she probably doesn't uh, because they know about her lifestyle. So um, I'm assuming they don't push her too hard. But crucially... Her parents are supportive, her family is supportive, and the Department of Human Services is supportive, right? You know, Karen got them involved after learning of Crystal's pregnancy because mm-hmm. she felt that Crystal needed it and the fact that the family were spending most of their week in Horsham in that business, that they'd be able to offer some more support and perhaps some education in dealing with the pregnancy and the baby. She lived a life differently to most people because of her intellectual disability. She didn't give a shit about changing her clothes. If she was comfortable, she'd wear those clothes for days and sleep in them. She didn't necessarily care about hygiene on occasions, unless her you know, mum reminded. So these these obviously issues that would worry her mother and the DHS. So, you know, she obviously needed education and training in, in the basics of life, basically, and basic care. That you can't care for a baby like that. Of course not. So, yeah, Karen made that happen. Karen organised a meeting with the DHS and Crystal to discuss it all. At that meeting, it was determined that Crystal would keep her baby and she would go into some a, a training session, basically, um, after leaving hospital with the baby and then be monitored for a period of about, oh, well, up to three months with visits from a DHS person, just monitor her, her capabilities. And Crystal was told that if she was able to um, or pass and qualify as far as they were concerned, she would keep her baby. And um, if not, that Karen would have to step in. In terms of um, keeping the baby, Crystal was aware that she was going to keep that baby. And, and excited about it by all accounts. Oh, I'm very enthusiastic. Everyone that I've spoken to, has told me how enthusiastic she was. So she went to hospital on the Tuesday by ambulance to have a baby. She's in the maternity wing of the Bendigo Hospital, awaiting the birth of a baby. The first day she arrived at the hospital, she gets a phone call and makes a contemporaneous note in her diary. So she, she writes straight after the phone call, just talking to my good mate PJ, I hope to catch up with him on the weekend if they let me out. So he knows she's in there. She released herself or discharged herself from the hospital on the Friday, the day before her disappearance. 
Her phone in that last week is running red hot. And and her mum says, oh, look, she was always on that bloody phone and to the extent that it was always running out of battery and all that stuff, which is why when she couldn't get hold of her for two days, she, she didn't panic because she thought, oh, she, look, I'm always leaving messages. She doesn't get back to me straight away, da-da-da. That's one of the reasons. But so in that last week, the phone's running hot. But now you realise after the fact that someone is ringing her a lot and sort of coaxing her out of hospital. Yeah. She returned home. I reckon at his insistence and on the Friday, but she was too visible. She visited her mother. She's uh, sorry, her grandmother. She went to the pub. She, she might have even got a haircut that day, I think. So she was out and about seen. Well, that's an amazing story, really, the last couple of days. I mean, this is an example of the way she lived her life. And she was sort of whirling around the pub very late at night, days before she's about to have her baby. And you know, she, she literally got kicked out of the pub at 11 o'clock at night because they said, Crystal, you're annoying everyone and you're heavily pregnant. Like, go home, <laughs> you know? It, and these people were friends yeah. and they looked up. Yeah. The, yeah, the, the publicans are lovely people. Um, they did care about it, but she was uh, in the pub and she told uh, a patron in the pub that she was waiting on her good mate to pick her up. And um, that didn't happen. She went home, rings an ambulance, heads back to um, the Bendigo Hospital. She's in content in hospital the next day. She's happy, staff are talking to her. And then she raises this the idea that she might return to uh, Pyramid Hill, her hometown, because she'd been invited to a party. Right. Now, this is the last time her, her parents are in touch and her mum is so pleased and content thinking, thank God she's in hospital, she's safe, and she's about to pop. She's going to have this baby any second. So her mum sort of takes her foot off that pedal because at the same time, Crystal's dad is in hospital, right? It was hospitalised with a patriotic complaint and uh, eventually they decide to take his gallbladder out. So instead of being home looking after Crystal or visiting her at the hospital, she's stuck. That stuck's not the right term, but she's stuck in, uh, in Horsham looking after her husband. Who's quite, who's quite ill. To me, that's just, I mean, that's life, you know, for most of us and increasingly so in Australia. The choice she faced was I, I, I want to be more than anything with my daughter having my first grandchild and this daughter in particular who needs support or our entire business will go broke literally in the space of a couple of days, in a week, and that's everything. That's our life. We have no savings. We have no nest egg. We have no rich parents to bail us out. We have none of that backup. And they had mortgages on their truck, on their business, on their house, you know, like every other mum and dad you're talking about. So, yeah, so, yeah, there's a lot of stresses in her life. So she's content that the daughter's in a hospital in good care. And Karen brings Crystal on the Saturday night, about 7 o'clock, she thinks, this is the 20th of June, 2009. Here's what she believes is um, the train station. Obvious noise has come out of the train station. And um, and she put it on Crystal that you're in the train station. Crystal um, quite angrily told her she wasn't. It was just other people in the hospital. There's plenty of them there. They're all making the noise. So Karen thought, oh, well, I've got that wrong. But Crystal was on her way home because this phone call had uh, obviously convinced her that she was going to go home to a party. Look at it. She didn't get a lot of invitations to parties. She liked the party. It was an opportunity she wasn't going to miss out. The looming birth of a baby was lasting in a 
than this invitation. The last person she spoke to about the pregnancy was an old lady from Bort, called the train home with her, Hazel Whitmore, and she knew Crystal quite well because they'd rode the train together because that was Crystal's life, riding, riding that train meeting people. Yeah, that was her outlet from the, the little town. She told Hazel, you know, how enthusiastic she was about it, and she was going back to the hospital the next day. So then on the so already um, mum Karen's just figuring out logistics because she has to go and run the business, which consists of driving a truck all over the Wimmera Mallee region of Victoria, which for other listeners is just a really big area. And it's a confectionery truck and she's delivering confectionery to businesses around this huge area of the state of Victoria. So logistically, that just takes hours and hours and hours. So that's what she has to do. And the entire time she's thinking to herself, I'll wait for the phone to ring to tell me she's in labour or she's had the baby or whatever. That's the best she can do. And then they admonish Karen for not knowing where she is and all of that. And yeah, it's outrageous to me because she's supposed to be in hospital and they let her go. Yeah. And it was all Karen's fault. Uh, You know, this is the attitude of the person who rang the midwife. So Karen snaps the key off in the lock of the truck, so friggin' angry with this this phone call and disturbed, honestly disturbed. And um, so her and Chantel um, head back to Paramount Hill. First they went to um, Crystal's flat. Well, that was also a moment for me in the book, um, Chantel being Crystal's sister, when you spoke about when they raced back to Crystal's flat, thinking to themselves, oh, my God, is she in there in labour screaming for help? which is at that time the worst thing they can imagine. So they go racing back there in this truck. Then they get there and she's not there, but what is inside the flat is beautiful new baby things, the beautiful new, all the things that Crystal had been gathering as she's been nesting in there, the new pram, the new clothes. Well, well they, they didn't know that then because they couldn't get in. And they didn't. the family didn't get in for some time. They were forbidden from going to the flat by the local copper. Uh, couldn't get in, but had a good look around and yelled went out, spent a fair bit of time and spoke to some of the neighbours and no one had seen Crystal. So anyway, they they try and report it to the local cop. He's on duty, but he's not a, not around. It's a single person station. And so they tasked Crystal's paternal grandmother, Helen Fraser, Neil's mother, to report it because they're worried that Crystal is missing and this is something serious. But they've got to get this truck on the road. They've got to fulfil this job. Now, they hadn't been able to make those deliveries a week before, so they didn't make them this week. Potentially, they'd lose customers, they'd lose their business, all the shit on by, on the truck, $100,000 worth of product, would be approaching news by days because we're talking chocolates and stuff. So the drama of that was overwhelming as well. No doubt they're hoping, please God, let Crystal be somewhere, you know, scared of going to hospital or something. Crystal did hop up hop on that plane, that train, you know, the V9 train it was basically her life. The trip and real enjoyed, and sometimes she would stay overnight somewhere, but mum always knew, always knew where she was because Crystal was such a prolific phone user, texting, phone calling. So Karen never ever worried about her daughter being somewhere else because she knew where she was and how to contact her. This was different. She wasn't able to contact her because her phone just sent this same awful message that she was uncontactable. So Helen makes a, makes a report to the local cop, Jason Brady, senior constable Jason Brady, who'd been there for a couple of years at that stage. He'd had 16 years 
prior experience, so he wasn't an inexperienced or young cop. When Helen reports the matter to Jason Brady at the Pyramid Police Station, she says, he just wiped me. He didn't take me seriously, and he never ever came near me again. He never rang me. He never provided any feedback. He never come around and asked any questions. So when Helen's reporting the matter to him, he said, oh, she's probably just gone to visit her dad in Horsham. He thought she was the architect of her own disappearance, simply simply hiding out and not a genuine missing person. You know, that said, he, he still made some inquiries and visited the hospital in Bendigo, viewed some CCTV at the hospital, made some inquiries at the railway station in Bendigo, but in the interest of finding her, but not necessarily in the interest of discovering the whereabouts of a missing person. He hasn't considered her a missing person. Yeah, he certainly wasn't treating it as a crime. In fact, I think he overheard, or someone started this rumour, Is it, I'm going to put it that way, that the Department of Human Services were planning to take the baby from Crystal after it was born and that that had been expressed and that she had found out that they had a policy not to tell young mothers that before they had their babies, that she had found out and that she had deliberately gone into hiding to prevent that from happening and that, in fact, her mum, Karen, was involved. Is that right? Uh, well, that wasn't established early. He's simply, he's simply saying, like for the first couple of weeks in all media that I've read, that um, she was hiding out. And it's either later on, and it's probably, you know, could be three weeks later, he starts saying that um, she was hiding out because two coaches were going to take a baby. When I spoke to him recently, he said, um, yeah, he'd spoken to a lady from the DHS and, and she told him that um, I've spoken to that lady and she completely denies that. In fact, um, is angry that you would suggest that because she never had any communication with any cop from anywhere before Crystal's disappearance and certainly never spoke to Jason Brady. And in fact, there are, there are records that Crystal was booked into these parenting programs and things like that? Yep, yep. So Karen's hearing this stuff and, um, you know, spending a lot of time in Horsham still, unfortunately, but she was demanding Brady to treat her Crystal's disappearance seriously. Look, on the basis of all the information that Brady had, even on the initial receipt of that, of Crystal's disappearance, there's a number of credible reasons why you know, he should have held fears for Crystal's safety and treated the disappearance as a potential crime. Well, because she should have had a baby within a couple of days. Well, she'd already been missing for 60 hours mm. at this stage. She, she had a, you know, a full-term pregnancy. She was enthusiastic to have the baby. You know, there's a vulnerability around her intellectual disability. There was nothing to suggest she was fabricating her disappearance. There was no evidence of that. She had no finance, no one looking after her, no benefactor. You know, just can financially support her. To not answering a phone, there's no history of her disappearing. She'd never, ever report as a missing person previously and behave as out of character. There was no confirmed sightings. There's no reasonable explanation for her absence. When were her last known movements pieced together, finally? When did that start to come together? So the homicide finally got involved 47 days after Crystal's disappearance. Oh, my God. So Brady had that case for months with no involvement from any other place. Look, he's reported up the chain of command, as he's obliged to do. So his local cluster sergeant, as they're called, which is at another police station, his inspector, which is based in Bendigo, 
the CIB at Bendigo, which looks after that area. He had to notify them with the initial missing persons report. He's done all those things. But he's also told them, obviously, this kid's just fucked off somewhere. She's going to turn up. All the coppers up the line, I mean, someone should have, you know, questioned his reasoning. She failed to turn up for a cesarean, mate. You know, how serious is that? So the bank account's not used, the phone's not used. There's no record of a baby's birth. It's sickening. It makes me sick to my stomach. So after a month, Bendigo CIB become involved, not because Brady's asked them to, or because, you know, shared concerns with them about Crystal. They only get involved, some bullshit ruling that after a person's been missing for 30 days, the CIB have to have a look at it. That's the only reason why they become involved. You know, they didn't come up with this idea themselves. Oh, shit, this kid's been missing for 30 days. She's got some trophy. Oh, so we know 14 days, 20 days. Why didn't they have a look at it? Anyway, that's a question for them. But so they've come involved, they go to the flat, and they find that her purse has got her, her credit cards and this sort of stuff in it, things she never went anywhere else with. Three weeks before they were there, two women, friends of the family, you know, in the spirit of friends, friendship, they decide they're going to clean Crystal's flat because it must be too hard for mum to have to do this when her daughter's missing and she's in Horsham anyway a lot of the time. So one of these women rings Carrot Fraser and says, um, we'd like to clean the flat. They're in searching the flat. They're throwing out rubbish. They're, they're ripping the place apart because it was a pigsty. They find the wallet. And they know instantly that this is something ominous. This is serious. Something's happened to Crystal because she wouldn't go anywhere without this wallet. So um, apparently one of the women told me that uh, they shipped themselves when they found this stuff and rang Brady and she'd get the fuck out of there. So this is well known. This, this is the 30th of June, seven days after she reported missing. So Brady knew that that purse was in it. If that didn't ring some bells, you know, create some, some alerts in his head, well, he was a very stubborn man. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Could we go through her movements that night? Because now we know there's so much and it's, it's intriguing. It's weird. There are other people and then there aren't. You know, she's with someone, then she isn't. She's on the train with this older lady who's a friend of Crystal's who she's, she's bumped into on the train many, many times and she considers, considers a friend, Miss Hazel Whitmore, and uh, she bumps into her again. She sounds like a lovely, lovely person. They are chatting and she says to Hazel, I've got to text me mates, you know, I'm going back for a party. And this lovely lady happens to notice, I love this, she happens to notice she's got no money in her purse. Somehow <laughs> she's peering into her purse and she thinks to herself, hey, well, how is she going to get back to the hospital? So she gives her two $5 notes, which is very sweet. She gave her one and thought, oh, oh that's a bit miserable, I'll yeah. give her another one. <laughs> <laughs> two $5 notes, which is important because when these ladies find this plastic bag, she's carrying around all of her gear around in a plastic bag, as you do. When the two ladies who were cleaning the flat found the plastic bag a few weeks later, sure enough, there were the two $5 notes in the plastic bag with her wallet. So the, the train stopped at Pyramid Hill Railway Station at 8.40pm. Crystal got out. She spoke to a dude she knew, Nicholas. They just had a bit of a chat. And then they were walking um, along the platform. Nicholas noticed another man who appeared to be waiting for Crystal and it seemed impatient, like he wanted Crystal to hurry up. And Nicholas said that he, the guy looked really well-dressed and he didn't look like the kind of guy that Crystal usually hung out with. He made that observation. And then the last time he saw Crystal, she was walking off with this guy. And then Crystal walked into the Pyramid Hill Bakery accompanied by A-Man. The lady who ran the bakery, Deborah Tracy, had a short conversation with Crystal and Crystal said, we are going to a party. And Crystal appeared cranky with the man that she was with. And then that same woman sees Crystal, she left the shop because she was going to a party, the woman who was from the shop, and uh, saw Crystal walking alone, you know, just a few minutes later. So this man had disappeared. Yeah, that's interesting. Crystal went and visited a friend of hers um, a few streets away. So she obviously walked there. She arrives at Robert's house. Is this the guy that... She then was taking phone calls, or she was she made a lot of phone calls from his phone. Yeah, well, she had um, she had no credit on her phone, so she used this guy's landline, I think it was, to make some calls. Yeah, she rang another guy, and uh, from that place, well, she rang a couple. She's trying to connect with this other bloke, and as far as Robert was concerned, she had connected, but um, later analysis for phone calls showed that she rang that number a few times, but no one answered. So Crystal spent half an hour at his place and then they'd left and he assumed she was going to this other guy's place. But the police have spoken to that other guy who's since deceased and I've never spoken to. He denied that Crystal arrived there and the police tended to believe him because he was he was drunk uh, and asleep. Anyway, but Crystal left this place. It sort of adds to the aimlessness of... Once she's sort of not with that guy anymore, it's like she gets off the train, he's waiting for her, she's walking with him, she gets to the bakery, the lady says she had the shits with this guy for some reason, I don't know why, and then the next minute she's alone and she's wandering around alone and a bit aimless. And then that's the last we see of her, isn't it? Well, we assume she's she's gone home. Mm. Um, so, look, we don't have access to the text messages because 
no one's ever found a phone. So the text messages might and say, well, you know, you wait home, I'll pick you up and take you to this party. And that's a reasonable assumption because she was coming home for a party and that sounded genuine enough because she told enough people. So she's waiting at home and then at 11.59 p.m. that night, telephone records that the homicide eventually got show that she got a call at 11.59 p.m. and the caller was ringing from the Leechpool phone box. There's only one phone box in Leechpool. It was, it was outside the post office at the time. She gets this call. It lasts for 45 seconds. After that, she's the telephone records also show that it was still a little in Pyramid Hill at 17 minutes past midnight because she checked a phone for some data. Then at 1.45 a.m., the phone's picked up by the Patho Tower. Patho's an area east of Gunbower, so 35-odd k's sort of northeast of Pyramid Hill. So her phone's her and her phone was picked up, so she's moved from home. And she's obviously moving in a car because she's travelled some distance from home. And also I need to just remind people in case anybody doesn't know, because it's a bit old school now, that when you've got no credit on your phone, you can still receive calls and texts. You just can't make any. So she's still very much able to receive directions and instructions on her phone. So at one forty five, she's picked up on that patho tower. So yeah, she's travelled there. And then a little over an hour later at 2.49am, the phone was checked for data again and it was picked up by the Leechville Tower then. So she's moved again, or at least her phone has. Her phone was turned off then. Her phone has never been turned on again. Her phone has never been found. So that's the last we've ever heard or know of Crystal Fraser. Can we go back to the significance of the phone booth? Let's let's do the whole phone booth right now. The inquiries reveal that, yeah, the phone call came from the Leechville phone box. There were 19 phone calls to Crystal from that phone box over a period of 37 days. They started on the 14th of May, 2009. Prior to that, there'd been calls between this Peter Jenkinson and Crystal for about two years. Multiple phone calls, both ways, from his landline, from his mobile, from Crystal's mobile. Those phone calls stopped the day before calls from the Leechville phone box began. So there's an implication there that this could be the person. These 19 phone calls, we don't, we don't know the, the nature of those, but other than the one that went to the hospital at 7.45pm on the 16th of June, four days before she disappeared, when she makes the, the diary entry of having just spoken to a good mate, PJ, hope you catch up with him on the weekend. So, you know, Crystal was this prolific phone user and how she she maintained the discipline to not ring Jenkinson for those 37 days, remembering that they'd made hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of communication between them on their on their mobiles or text or whatever for a two-year period before. And then she stops abruptly on the 13th of May. Does it show, you know, the control that Jenkinson had over her? You know, and the fact that if he is this PJ, and it's reasonable to assume that PJ is Peter Jenkinson, Jenkinson, when he was interviewed by Homicide, he acknowledged speaking to Crystal when she went to hospital, went to the Bendigo Hospital to have a baby. So he acknowledges a phone call to her. The Homicide Squad uh, examined all the CCRs, call charge records, calls into Crystal, calls out of Crystal, and from Jenkinson's phones, his mobile and his landline, 
There were no calls from Jenkinson's mobile phone, from his landline. There was no call from Crystal or the Benio Base Hospital that night. That's the 16th of June. So the call had to have come from Jenkinson, who was in that phone box. So it's reasonable to assume that if he's made this phone call on the 16th of June, he's also the caller on the 20th of June. The person who rings Crystal at 11.59pm, and he's also the same person that ring, rang earlier on that Saturday, the last day that Crystal was alive. And he's personally invited to the party. That's a reasonable inference based on all those factors. Jenkinson provided an alibi on the night that Crystal disappeared. He was playing chess with a friend at the friend's real property. So the alibi witness made a statement to police back then, back in 2009, as soon as um, Jenkinson became a person of interest, that Jenkinson had left his place just before being known. Headed in the direction of his home, in Gumbauer, which is in the opposite direction of Leechville. So he's headed off from my place in this direction, so there's no way he could have made that phone call you know, a few minutes later at Leechville, which is some kilometres away. But so I went and saw this alibi witness years later, obviously, and uh, he told me that Jenkins had left his premise at 11pm, and I got him to clarify that a couple of times. He, he's not safeguarded by that alibi if he's left at 11pm. He's had ample time to to get here, there, and everywhere. The integrity of that witness was um, it was further compromised when I spoke to his wife. The wife of the friend? Yep. Yep. The alibi, the alibi witness. He told me that his wife wasn't home. I think he told the homicide squad too that she wasn't home. She was getting medical tests somewhere uh, at a hospital. So she wasn't there the night that Jenkins had here playing chess with him, the important night, the rallying night. And she said, oh, that's bullshit. I was there. I remember that night. I remember them discussing Crystal afterwards. And um, she stayed out of those conversations because she didn't want to know. But she heard them discussing the case. And she didn't know that he'd made an alibi, that he'd become an alibi witness, which is really unusual. You know, a husband and wife situation, they've been married 20 years. But why wouldn't you tell your wife if you looked after your friend? And they're best friends. They were best friends then, this Jenkinson and the alibi witness. So Jenkinson can't rely on that alibi to say that it couldn't have been at Leechville at that phone box 11.55pm. During my inquiries, um, I spoke to a businesswoman that the Fraser family said I should go and speak to who lived in Gunbauer. She's a highly respected member of the community there. She told me that um, before there was any publicity about or any police presence in Gunbauer, she saw Jenkinson and a bloke called Stephen Jones, who was who became a suspect in Crystal's disappearance as well. They were close mates. They were very good mates. She saw them having a huge row in front of a business. She couldn't hear what they were saying, but their arms were waving, waving around. They were very aggressive and angry. It went after some time. On the 16th of September, both Jones and Peter Jenkinson were taken in separately and interviewed as suspects. And uh, afterwards... This Stephen Jones, who's now deceased, he died in 2010, a year after Crystal's disappearance, of a gunshot wound at the abdomen, which was determined to be a suicide by a coroner. But there's people I've spoken to think it might be otherwise. 
So Steve Jones turns up a week after his interview with a homicide squad to this businesswoman's place. He was upset and crying and said, I want to make a statement to you. So he wrote out a note, gives it the impression, well, he tells her that he believes that Jenkinson's responsible for the death of Crystal, makes a bit of a statement, doesn't say that in the statement, but he writes, if the head of the homicide squad, which was head of the homicide inquiry, which was Detective Sergeant Wayne Walsh, if he doesn't get to my place or get Nick or Sharon to ring me, I'm going to kill Peter Jackets. So, you know, he's, he's just told this woman that yeah, Jenkins, he believes Jenkinson's responsible, makes this note. She takes the note, gives it to local copper and gunbauer. He gives it to the homicide squad. Wayne Walsh apparently comes up the next day, speaks to Jones, and his evidence at the inquest, Walsh said he, he saw the note, had a chat to Jones, but didn't make much of it, which hearing what I've heard over time, seems inappropriate that you know it looks like this guy's either a crook or a witness but he's got a story to tell it's frustrating that they didn't get that story and he didn't make much of the note and made a comment to one of the family at some stage i think that oh yeah yeah jones don't worry about him he's a bit off or something but so a couple of months down the track jones turns up at this businesswoman's place again this woman um you know, she nurtures people and she attracts yeah. lowly men, I suppose. And um, so he turns up again, fights her out the car and um, says, look at this, and pulls, pulls out a, a soiled piece of material. And she said, oh, what's that? And he said, this is a shirt that Crystal was wearing when she was murdered. And he indicates three holes in the shirt and says, these are stab marks. And he says, that staining, that black marks, marks on it, his blood. She rings local cop again, passes information on the homicide squad. The shirt was never seized. When Wayne Walsh gave Edwards the inquest, he had no knowledge of the shirt. Never heard about it. So I don't know what went wrong then. And further, I was speaking to this businesswoman and she tells me about this argument, yeah, which I know is relevant. I can see it's relevant. It's circumstantial evidence. She tells me about Steve Jones' daughter, who was 16 at the time. So I located her, have a chat. She tells me some explosive material, really incriminating material against one of the suspects, and I won't elaborate on it. I want people to read the book. We'll leave the results of the the inquest to readers of the book because the book is excellent and I really do want people, um, our listeners, to, to read it for fair, many, many reasons. Can I ask, are you optimistic that this will move forward from this point? I am optimistic that a suspect will be charged. So in terms of how the family fare and have fared, well, a high-class Neil as a recluse now. Look, they are an outgoing, happy family, mixed socially with everything, everybody. They are very active people, like, you know, people running the bakery cafe, almost like the mayor of the town in small towns like that. They know everyone, they know everything. Neil is an absolute recluse now. You know, worked night shift for years, worked in Melbourne, took himself away from Pyramid Hill, and he told me that if he stayed there, he didn't know what he might do. Karen, she shares herself exclusively with the three good mates. That's it. You know, she's she's not out there anymore. They're not that happy couple. And why would they do that? They haven't got the answer. Look, I've given them some relief, and this is not my ego talking. 
they feel that they've got some information now that they didn't have before because of that witness and they're convinced that they know who did it. Thank you to Dennis O'Brien. His book, Last Train Home, is available now and a link is provided in our show notes. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 92 76 or 13 Yarn .org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.